live from Earth, it's Space Radio. This is Paul Sutter, and coming up, we're talking about I took a photograph of an exoplanet, and of course, taking listener questions about all things in this gorgeous universe, because that's what this show is about. We record live every Thursday at 8 p.m. Eastern, so you can follow along online or leave a voicemail at spaceradioshow.com. And today's Blue Shift, I'll be talking about a dangerous dance with Jillian Rhodes. But first, the news. Hey, space cadets. Welcome to Space Radio. I'm Paul Sutter, astrophysicist at Stony Brook University and the Flatiron Institute. And for the next half hour, your one and only agent to the stars. We've got an exciting show for you today on Space Radio where we talk about all the amazing things happening in this universe. If it's above the Earth's atmosphere, it's in this show's universe. This show lives on listener questions. We record every Thursday at 8 p.m. Eastern here at Spaceman Studios in New York City. So leave a voicemail at spaceradioshow.com to get your question on the air. You can also follow along with our space cadets tuning in live from around the world, including but not limited to Panama, Warsaw, Dumas, Mississippi, Washington, D.C., New Zealand, Anchorage, Alaska, Pell City, Alabama, and London, U.K., Chattanooga, Tennessee, Florence, Massachusetts, Sunnyvale, California, and Austin, Texas. Seriously, folks, I need some help, all right? I prepped like 10 minutes of show material tops, so get those questions in. Before I start taking questions, I wanted to share some interesting bits of news I caught recently. And you know me. I'm a sucker for only a couple things in this universe. One is cheese and the other is exoplanets. I love exoplanet news because it's so sci-fi. It's so out there. I love it. You know what? It feels like exoplanet astronomers really aren't doing any work. The telescopes aren't even operating. They're just sitting around like betting each other, trying to one-up each other. What, what is the most outrageous thing they can find? And then they publish it and it gets published and peer reviewed. And then it appears in the news and everyone goes nuts. And it's like every year we, we think we found the most ridiculous thing. And then something else happens. And there's something else that just happened that I just have to talk about is a star known as TYC 899-87601. We'll just go with the name. That's not the exciting part. That's not the exciting part. Anyway, the exciting part is we took a picture. We took a picture of this star. And we use something called a coronagraph, which is a tiny little dot. Have you ever like looked at something and there was a bright light, like a light or a flashlight, and you've used your thumb to block out the light so you can you can see it better and see around it better? Congratulations, you've just performed a human demonstration of a coronagraph. A coronagraph is when we look at a distant star, then we use a little device to block the light of the star itself, and then look to see if anything around it also happens to be bright now that it's not washed out by the light of that star. That's what we did to this star, our astronomers did with the European Southern Observatory's aptly named Very Large Telescope. Guess how big it is? Anyway, they took a picture of this system and they found two planets. That's right. These are pictures of planets. Now, this has only been done a few times before. 
It's relatively rare because it's hard. This star is 300 light years away from Earth. This star is like our sun, but in an earlier stage of its evolution. It's relatively young. And these, and here we are. Like It's right here on my laptop screen. I'm sorry you can't transmit pictures through radio. Someday we'll invent the technology to do something like that. I'm looking at a picture of two planets. I'm looking at a, two pic- a picture of two planets in a system 300 light years away. Now, these planets are huge. These things are monstrous and orbiting very, very distant orbits. Uh, One of them, the smaller of of the two, is six times bigger than Jupiter. The other is 14 times bigger than Jupiter. That's stretching into brown dwarf category. 14 times bigger than Jupiter and six times bigger than Jupiter. These things orbit so far away from their star. Uh, One is... Let me see here, 320 AU. Oh my gosh, and the other is 160 AU, and AU is an astronomical unit. It's the distance from the Earth to the sun. Uh, Jupiter is five times the distance. It's five AU. And the nearest planet in this system is 160 AU. The other, what a weird system. You've got these two massive planets orbiting at this incredible distance around a star not very different from our sun. So immediately we want to know, why did our sun get this family of planets, but a star that looks very, very similar to our sun get a very different family of planets? The only way to figure it out is to, you know, keep taking pictures of stars. So that's my... I mean, it's, this show should just be This Week in Exoplanets, really. That's the latest and greatest when it comes to space. It's time for a conversation. We've got a voicemail ready to go, but before I do, I have to. I have to share it because I'm a sucker for only three things in this universe, cheese, exoplanets, and bad jokes. And as I was describing a corona graph and how it works, how it blocks the light from the sun, Space Cadet Paranor 001 said, it's a mask for a star. How appropriate for the times we are in. You put a mask on a star, you can see what planets orbit it. Thank you. Thank you for making my day worth it. Anyway, Greg, do you have anything in your day worth it? I'll give you something. How about you press that button and we get that voicemail going. Hello. I hear that electromagnetic propulsion of spacecraft can't work. But if shooting photons out the back of your rocket don't push it forward, then why not put up a sail up front and shoot your laser at that? It'd be blowing your own sail, literally. Very, very, very fun question, Brian. I love this. A question about electromagnetic propulsion and rocketry and what can work and what cannot work and the concept of solar sails. Um... Let's start with a couple basics when it comes to rocketry. Rocketry works in vacuum because you are shoving something out the back end of your rocket ship. And through conservation of momentum, because you're shoving something out the back end, that is going to make your rocket go forward. That's simple. Like if you were stranded on a a plane of ice in the middle of nowhere and you in every time you try to step it's perfectly slippery so you can't move if you take off your shoe and throw your shoe in one direction you will go in the opposite direction that's conservation of momentum so if you want the rocket to work you have to throw something out the back you can throw anything you want out the back 
up to and including light. You can shoot a laser beam out your back end and that will make your rocket go forward just fine. But radiation light, it doesn't have a lot of mass or it has zero mass. It doesn't have a lot of energy. It doesn't have a lot of momentum. So it's not going to push your rocket very, very much. You need a big giant laser and then you need a laser so big that the amount of energy coming out of the laser wouldn't even be able to move the actual physical laser because your laser is just too big to be moved efficiently by the laser itself. And it just, you just end up losing. So Brian, you came up with an interesting idea. Instead of shooting it out the back, why don't we shoot the laser out the front, reflect it off the sail, and then that could get us some forward motion. It's funny you mentioned that I consult on some TV shows and movies and I was having a conversation with the writers of a particular TV series. I can't mention the name because it's all under contract. Uh, but once the show comes out, I'll be able to talk about it, of course. And they wanted their ship. They even had some CGI mock-ups of a ship shooting a laser out its front, bouncing off a sail, and it could propel itself across the universe we had to have a conversation about momentum. So if you have a ship and you shoot the laser out the front, that makes your ship go backwards. But then the laser bounces off the sail and the sail is attached to the ship and that makes your ship go forwards. Um, you end up going nowhere. You just burn a hole in your sail. Not the most efficient means of propulsion in our universe. And unfortunately, that's just the way it is. And so one way around it is you need to put the laser somewhere else. Like if you put the laser on the ground or in space somewhere by itself and then shoot the laser at a sail that can propel a spacecraft. That's the what's the underlying concept behind the Starshot Initiative Project, which is trying to design the largest laser ever i think it's like a hundred megawatt laser that is the combined power of all the nuclear power plants in the united states operating at once to power a laser for 10 minutes to shoot at a super highly reflective solar sail that's like a kilometer on a side and it can accelerate a spacecraft in those 10 minutes up to 10 percent of the speed of light if that spacecraft weighs one gram if you want to know a familiar object that weighs one gram that's a paperclip Whenever I see the news about the Project uh, Starshot initiative thing, I think this is the most expensive way to send humanity's paperclips on voyages across the stars. Thank you for that awesome call, Brian. Uh, that, that was fun. You know, we're going to take a little break here, folks. Uh, but before we do, I do want to mention our sponsor, which is you. That's right. You. You go to patreon.com slash PM Sutter so that you can support this show and keep this show, keep these episodes flowing. It is how it works. Sometimes I take Greg out to lunch. That's patreon.com slash PM Sutter for you to support the show. And I'll see you after the break. Support for Space Radio on 90.5 WCBE comes from Thompson Hine, a business law firm serving clients for more than a century. Thompson Hine provides innovative client service through SmartPath, a smarter way to work, predictable, efficient, and aligned with client goals. More information about the firm at thompsonhine.com. 
Welcome back everyone, I'm Paul Sutter and this is Space Radio. We've got more questions ready to go, but remember you can join the conversation by leaving an online voicemail or by following the live streams with all the other lovely Space Cadets. Check out spaceradioshow.com for all the links. Currently, the Space Cadets are comparing their pictures and experiences with the comet Neowise, which is still visible. I believe it's best visible in the northern hemisphere about an hour after sunset. Look in that southwestern sky. There are apps. There are apps that can tell you how to find it, where to find it, what's the best time, how bright it should be, well, uh, how dark your skies need to be in order to catch it. It's a great site in binoculars. Go ahead and check out Comet Neowise. If you have dark enough skies, it is naked eye visible, uh, but not for long, not for long. Anyway, moving through the space cadets here, we got plenty of awesome questions. We're going to start out with Alex W on YouTube. When a star dies, its fusion of iron absorbs more energy than energy released. How do the outer layers get the kinetic energy from the supernova's bounce to escape the dying star's gravity? So we're talking about the death of the most massive stars and the most massive stars, their death starts when they form iron in their cores, when they've been fusing elements higher and higher and higher up the periodic table until they hit iron. Then when you try to fuse iron, that actually sucks energy out of the system rather than releasing energy. So what happens is you have this iron core that very, very quickly transforms into a nickel core and then and it's basically the same thing. And you have the rest of the star on top of it, surrounding it, and it's compressing in and it's squeezing in. And this core collapses from all that incredible weight. It collapses very, very, very quickly. It collapses, like as soon as you pound on it with the hammer of this star's atmosphere, it shrinks down in on itself faster than the rest of the atmosphere can catch up. So all of a sudden, the core shrinks to a very, very small fraction of its size. It's shrinking to be nearly infinitely small. It's shrinking, it wants to become a black hole, but it temporarily stops because the densities reach such a peak, such an intensity, that some of the electrons in those atoms get shoved inside protons, which they absolutely hate to do. And they turn those protons into neutrons and you end up with a giant ball of neutrons about the size of a city. So in a matter of seconds, the core goes from something the size of uh, the Earth or several Earths larger to something smaller than a city. And that neutron star, that proto-neutron star can support itself at least temporarily because neutrons don't like to be squished together. So the core squishes down into a tiny, tiny size faster than the rest of the star can collapse inwards. Then the rest of the star collapses inwards, finds that neutron star and bounces off of it. And that is what triggers the supernova event is that bouncing off of the neutron core. Another thing that happens is that when those electrons get smushed into the atoms and turn them from protons to neutrons, they emit a particle called neutrinos. Now, neutrinos absolutely flood the universe. They exist everywhere, but they hardly ever interact with matter. 
but so many neutrinos are produced in this event that they can actually inflate the supernova and send a shockwave out. They can pour more energy into the supernova explosion. In fact, 99% of an energy of the energy coming out of a supernova is in the form of neutrinos. It's not even in visible light. That's how crazy powerful these supernova are. But once it happens, you're off to Boomtown and that supernova is just out of this world. But that's the key process is that the core has to collapse and then temporarily halt the collapse of the rest of the star. And that bounce action is what triggers the supernova. Orson Zed over on YouTube is asking, why do stellar atmospheres stratify? Stratify, shouldn't all the heaviest elements just sink to the core? So if we look at something like the sun, the sun is 75% hydrogen, 25% helium, and the tiniest, tiniest, tiny fraction of other things. You know, there's a little bit of carbon in the sun, some oxygen in the sun, some, there's some iron floating around. I'm sure there's some potassium if it ate a banana recently. Like there's just, uh, there's some, just some random elements sprinkled throughout the sun. And when we look at random elements on the earth, the heaviest elements sink to the core and the lightest elements rise to the top. And so that's why we have like iron in our core, mantle, we have rocks, and then we have lighter water on top of that. And we have the lightest stuff, the atmosphere like nitrogen at the very, very outermost layers of the earth. That's what we call stratification. But in the sun, Things are messy. Things are constantly moving back and forth. In the deepest parts of the sun, you have radiation constantly blowing outwards that is going to prevent anything from settling down. And then in the middle layers of the sun, you have these massive chains of convection, of churning of material of moving up and down, like these massive conveyor belts going up and down inside the sun of, of plasma. And since there's so much action, since there is so much activity, nothing can really, really settle. And so that's why we generally don't see stars stratify. But in the core of the sun, if you just look at the core, as the sun fuses hydrogen into helium, that helium does tend to settle in the core because that's deep already deep down in the core and has a hard time escaping. And that has big impacts for the rest of the sun's life is that buildup of helium in the core. Arnetta Davis is asking, uh, did anyone watch the launch of the latest SpaceX mission for Korea? I didn't personally watch it, but I am paying attention to another launch coming up, the Mars 2020 mission, set to launch on Thursday, July 30th. I will be covering it for the Weather Channel starting this weekend, Sunday at 8.40 a.m. Eastern. I will be talking about the upcoming Mars 2020 launch. I was supposed to go to Florida, but then they had to go and have a coronavirus outbreak. And so nobody gets to go and I was going to cover a rocket launch live for Weather Channel was all set up. And then, you know, kind of scary down there. So while I'll be covering it remotely from the safety of my home that is far away from Florida. Last question, Infinite Monkey is asking, what's up with this object too small to be a black hole and too large to be a neutron star? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Astronomers spotted this object that is bigger than we think 
neutron stars ought to be, but also smaller than we think black holes ought to be. We do think it's just an abnormally small black hole, but we're not exactly how it got made because it, as best we can understand the formation of black holes, they come from stars that have to be a certain mass. And that puts a rough minimum mass threshold on the size of a black hole. It's around five times the mass of the sun. And on the opposite end, if you try to pack too much material onto a neutron star, it just collapses under its own weight and turns into a black hole. And so there's like a region here, a gap, and astronomers think they've spotted a object that sits in the middle of that gap. We do think it's a small black hole. But again, we're not exactly sure. Thank you for all these amazing questions today. As usual, we're almost out of time today on Space Radio. But before we go, it is time for the Blue Shift. I'm Paul Sutter, and you're listening to Space Radio, and this is The Blue Shift, my opportunity to get a little bit closer to you. And I love science and art collaborations. I really do. I really love communicating science through the arts. I really love sharing what I know and what I love about the universe through the arts, especially dance. Dance is just such a beautiful medium, especially for expressing physics, because physics is all about motion and momentum and energy and interactions. And that's the exact same language that dancers use. And a recently, a dancer, a Jillian Rhodes, reached out to me and she wanted to do a little virtual collaboration because obviously we, we can't do this in person. And what we did is I recorded some parts of my new book, How to Die in Space. I created a narration for it. And then she danced to it. Uh, she put some music behind it. She danced the dance. And she danced like in her apartment because where else are you going to dance? And she promoted it as a part of the recent CosmoQuest-a-thon. So my good friend, Dr. Pamela Gay, runs CosmoQuest, which is a citizen science project. They recently had a, a big con, a big conference over weekend. It was all virtual. Unfortunately, I couldn't make it uh, because I had some family obligations, so I wasn't able to attend or present. But I was there in spirit because this wonderful artist and dancer, Jillian Rhodes, performed it and she has recently posted it on her YouTube channel. If you're curious, uh, you can check out the links. I'm going to put a link in the show notes over on spaceradioshow.com. Or if you catch the live stream chat replay over on Twitch or YouTube, uh, Nancy Graziano, the Space Cadet Wrangler, is helpfully putting the link there. I encourage you to go to, if you can't find the links, the name of the performance is Explorer Ready or Not with narrations from astrophysicist Paul M. Sutter, that's me, uh, with Jillian Rhodes from CosmoQuest Icon. So thank you so much, Jillian, for creating that. I love science and art collaboration. I just had a phone call a week ago with a comic book artist, helping them work out some physics for their comics books. I don't know. I'm, I'm just very, very lucky to be in the position where I am, where I get to talk with and work with so many creative, amazing, intelligent, hardworking people and get science out there in some very unexpected directions. And unfortunately, this broadcast is almost on. Thank you for joining me on this voyage of space radio. 
Once again, I'm Paul Sutter, and this show is brought to you by you. Please visit patreon.com slash PM Sutter to learn how you can contribute. Thanks to Greg Mobius for producing, Nancy Graziano for wrangling the Space Cadets, and all the fine crew at WCBE Radio 90.5 FM in Columbus for making this show possible. Catch the live stream every Thursday, 8 p.m. Eastern. Visit spaceradioshow.com for all the links and how to join the Space Cadets. And of course, thanks again, Space Cadets, for listening. See you next week. And remember... Science is for sharing and of transmission.